Welcome to Breadcrumbs Season 2. This season, we're exploring the theme sacred versus secular. It's a distinction that we often make between spiritual and unspiritual activities. For example, praying before I eat is a spiritual activity, and eating after I pray is unspiritual. Eating isn't wrong, but it's also not sacred. But is this a distinction that's helpful for our Christian worldview? Is it even true? We're going to examine a variety of life activities this year and consider these questions. In our first episode, we're going to introduce our theme and explore these questions through the topic of music. To help us answer the question of sacred versus secular in the area of music, we sat down with Steve Nye. Steve is a member of Bread of Life and has been a part of the community for nearly his entire life, with the exception of a few years when he was away for college. He's been playing piano since he was five, has had experience studying voice in high school, has led a Christian a cappella group in church worship in college, and he's spent countless hours enjoying a personal study of music theory. So he's pretty qualified to talk about music. Since his return in 2004, Steve has been involved with the music ministry at Bread of Life, using his background in orchestra and choral music to serve. Even just last month, he coordinated and conducted our Bread of Life Orchestra to play two pieces during our Christmas program and services, and he coordinated our English a cappella choir. So we asked him to help us think about music and to consider what value it has in our lives. I know that when I was listening to Steve and uh, to hear his ideas, I discovered an appreciation for music that I never had before. Thanks, Steve, for uh, joining us uh, for the first episode of Season 2 of Breadcrumbs. Uh, So how does music fit into the Christian life and theology? Well, on a very obvious level, music can be used to worship God. The Bible makes many references to singing and making music for God, and the Bible even includes a book of song lyrics, the Psalms. The famous reformer Martin Luther, a musician himself, considered it crucial that Christians learn music so that they could participate personally in singing God's truth. But a point that is often overlooked is this. Music fits into the Christian life because music is a part of the way that God created us. The fundamentals of music are actually wired into our biology, into the way that we've been created. Uh, Our biology. Um, Can you give an example or explain how that works? Sure. Uh, For instance, our system of musical pitches, the notes of the scale, are derived from the fact that we find pleasure in certain combinations of tones. When the frequencies of two tones are in a 1 to 2 ratio, we hear the interval known as an octave. When two frequencies are in a 2 to 3 ratio, we hear a perfect fifth. These two intervals are especially pleasing and occur in the musical systems of cultures all around the globe. All the other degrees of the scale, as well as all chords, are ultimately built from combinations of such basic mathematical ratios that have been built into our brains. Another intriguing phenomenon is what is known as octave equivalence. Just now, I mentioned that the octave is a very pleasant-sounding interval. But more than that, our brains somehow consider two notes separated by an octave to be the same, or equivalent. There is actually no reason why this necessarily has to be the case. In fact, it appears that some animals don't have this sense. But if we humans did not have octave equivalents, music as we know it would not exist. We could hear pitches moving up and down, 
but we would have no sense of periodically repeating scales. Not to mention, it would be very difficult for men to sing a song in unison with women, or vice versa. It's important to hear what he's saying. The musical theory that most of us hate to learn, I know I did, comes from combinations of mathematical ratios that are wired into us. An octave equivalence is an important and very practical aspect of our musical experience, but we really have no reason to expect this. Steve's explanation of these things is important, and it's what comes next. Now, we know that God is a creative God and that he enjoys creating things. So when we take these musical fundamentals that God has programmed into us and apply them to create things of beauty, we are exalting and glorifying our creator. As an analogy, imagine that you are a carpenter. Suppose you teach your daughter the principles of carpentry, and she goes off and uses those skills to put together a beautiful cabinet of her own design. Would you, as the carpenter, not, uh, not be proud? In the same way, I think when we create or enjoy music, we are giving glory to God. So our experience of music and its rules that allow us to play and compose and even listen should be seen as something God has established for us to innovate and for us to enjoy as humans. We might even say it's part of our relationship and experience of God himself. From here, Steve took us back in time, giving us a glimpse into the life of one of the most famous musicians and composers in history. Now, while some of us would say history isn't our sweet spot, seeing music through the eyes of someone wiser and more experienced might add much to our own approach. So if we were to maybe look at a, an example of someone who maybe encapsulates a lot of this creativity, is, is there someone that comes to mind? Sure. Uh, I would say uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, many people are vaguely aware of a musician named J.S. Bach, but don't know much about his life. So for the sake of context, I'll say a little bit about that. As a young musician, Bach went through several different jobs, but for the latter portion of his career, when he was most mature as a composer, J.S. Bach was a professional church musician. Basically, he was a worship leader. As worship leader, Bach took it upon himself to create what he called a well-regulated body of church music, for Sunday service, he would write, rehearse, and then finally present a com uh, complete musical services of about 20 minutes long, complete with orchestra and choir, on a topic related to a hymn and a scriptural reading for the day. For years, he produced these at the impressive rate of one a week. Of these cantatas, as they are known, dozens have been lost to history, but over 200 still exist. For instance, this little tune, which you have undoubtedly heard at a wedding, is one movement of cantata number 147. Uh, Bach's cantatas, along with a few large-scale works for special occasions such as his Mass, his Passions, and the Magnificat, constitute a massive portion of his life's work. Unfortunately, when students of music study Bach's music, they never appreciate the depth of his devotion to the church. Bach was so dedicated to communicating the word of God that he has been called the fifth evangelist, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Bach. It's a little blasphemous, 
but it truly illustrates how highly he is regarded in Christian musical circles. Oh, how, how, uh, how highly regarded is he then, overall then, would you say? Well, without question, uh, among musicians overall, Bach is one of the titans of traditional Western music. If you ask a classically trained musician to name the top three composers of all time, Bach will almost certainly appear in that list, with the most likely trio probably being Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven. In part because he was the earliest of those three, Bach is often considered to be the single most influential composer of all time. Obviously, it brings great glory to God that Bach dedicated his enormous musical talent to the service of God. But it also brings glory to God that Bach, the Christian musician, was so impressive as to command immense respect even among non-Christians. This has had the fortunate side effect of exposing Bach's church works to a non-believing audience. Non-believers who listen to Bach's music often admit that even though they may not agree with his religious beliefs, they admire his very obvious faith and dedication as expressed by the beauty and emotion in his music. Composer, uh, George Kurtag, said this, Consciously, I am certainly an atheist, but I do not say it out loud, because if I look at Bach, I cannot be an atheist. Then I have to accept the way he believed. His music never stops praying. This type of sentiment could be considered a musical analog of Matthew 5.16, which we could reword as follows. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may hear your faith expressed in music and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's pretty interesting. Uh, could you share more about Bach's perspective on music? Well, I think Bach can contribute to our discussion in at least three ways. The first concerns Bach's attitude towards music. Bach was a master of the art of counterpoint, which is the technique of combining multiple simultaneous independent melodies in a pleasing fashion. His music is full of themes combined with other themes or the same theme, shifted up or down, in half-time or double-time, even backwards and or upside-down. It was natural, therefore, for Bach to see music composition as a process of discovery, of unlocking the beautiful potential hidden within the themes that he was working with. In a way, all music, whether for church or not, was sacred because it allowed him to appreciate and explore the musical framework that was set up by God. It's a powerful way of thinking about music. In a very real sense, music is intrinsically, by its very nature, sacred because it's something that God created and gave to humans to express their own creativity and for them to enjoy. Remembering this is important to help us realize that the very essence of music is a part of our faith and our relationship with God. Okay, enough from me. Let's hear more from Steve. By the way, since we're talking about counterpoint, here is a simple example of counterpoint from chorale number 79. At the beginning of the first movement, the listener hears the following music played by the trumpets and timpani, accompanied by a counter melody in the strings and oboes.
it's nice music. Uh, but Bach has a surprise in store. Later on, the trumpet and the timpani music returns, but now it's paired with a different counter melody that would have been pleasantly familiar to the average worshiper, and maybe even you who are listening today. It's the hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. Secondly, regarding the categories of sacred and secular, Bach famously said that the purpose of music is, quote, nothing other than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the spirit. I'd like to point out that in his quotation, Bach names two beneficiaries of music, God and man. Here is the world's greatest Christian composer suggesting that music can be acceptable even if it's not exclusively for God. In other words, music with a, quote, unquote, secular component is not necessarily problematic. Finally, regarding the categories of sacred and secular, we can examine the way that Bach composed his music. Bach had no reservations about repurposing his own music for both sacred and secular purposes. For instance, here is the brilliant opening movement of Chorale No. 29, which is entitled, We Thank Thee, God, We Thank Thee. In fact, this is a reworking of an earlier non-church piece that Bach had written as a virtuosic violin solo. Therefore, if we look at the example of the world's greatest Christian composer, we have reason to believe that music has an intrinsic value, and the line between sacred and secular need not be as distinct as many may suspect. If we talk about the categories, uh, the different categories of music, how would you uh, se se segregate or separate them so that we can appropriately um, approach them? Sure. Uh, as a Christian musician who often spends time evaluating music, I have always thought of music as falling into one of three categories. 
I'm sure you could subdivide these categories or create exceptions, but I think they provide a good general framework for discussing music and Christianity. And the categories are these. Uh, the first category is music with lyrics that explicitly express a Christian worldview. So in this category, you would find music of all types that is usually encountered in church or maybe on Christian radio. The second category is music without lyrics. In this category, you would find a lot of classical or instrumental music. And the third category is music with lyrics that do not explicitly express a Christian worldview. In this category, you would find the majority of popular music. It's important to remember here that these categories are meant to help us think about music. They are not in and of themselves meant to assign value or moral judgment. In light of the nature of music, as we've been learning, there is an intrinsic sacredness and beauty to music. But as we've all experienced, we don't always stick to God's way. So I think Steve's categories and ideas are helpful for us to think about these things. So what can we say about the appropriateness and relative worth of these categories of music? I think we can all agree that music in the first category, music expressing a Christian worldview, brings glory to God and is therefore appropriate and worthy. So moving on to the second category, what about music without lyrics? Well, remember what I said earlier about music being a gift from God and, uh, you know, the illustration I gave of the carpenter's daughter. Even though a piece of music without lyrics does not directly speak God's truth, it is still presumably a thing of beauty. Therefore, by default, unless there is a reason to think otherwise, I believe such music does bring glory to God, and it is appropriate for Christians to participate in creating or consuming such music. Uh, thanks, Steve. So the... The third category, though, I think our listeners are more um, interested in hearing about uh, because it would seem from just listening that those things would be considered beautiful, too, right? So could you describe how this may be, uh, how it is affected? Sure, yes. So I believe that music in the third category, which is music with lyrics that uh, do not explicitly express a Christian worldview, that music must be evaluated with, ex with extreme caution. Music that does not explicitly express a Christian worldview may in fact express an anti-Christian worldview. And in such a situation, perhaps the music itself may be a thing of beauty, but any sinful message conveyed by the lyrics would easily outweigh whatever pleasure God may have derived from the music. Because we are immersed in a culture that is so godless, and the values and the spirit of this age are so opposed to the Christian worldview, it's quite easy to miss an anti-Christian worldview. Consider, for instance, that innocent and beloved Disney movie Frozen and its instant hit song, Let It Go. For months and even years after the movie came out, millions of young children across the U.S. were playing this song on repeat. And as they listened, they celebrated and internalized the message that the most important thing in life was to follow one's own, de one's own desires and be true to oneself. I don't have time to discuss at length what exactly is wrong with this attitude, but there is an excellent article on the Gospel Coalition website on the precise subject of Let It Go. And if you still harbor any doubt that this song is okay for Christians to sing or listen to, I would point out that the lyrics actually contain the words, no right, no wrong. As Christians, we are asked to approach everything with discernment, and when we approach music, all music in the third category, I believe, needs to be evaluated with extreme caution and discernment. All right, thanks, Steve.
and thanks for sharing all your thoughts on the topic of music. No problem. I hope it's been useful. Steve is right about that. In God's sacred world, many sacred things, like music, have been stained with sin and have been commandeered by sinful people expressing their sinfulness. In truth, we may find this to be true, even in Christian music. But when we realize and react to the intrinsic sacredness of music as a part of God's created world, our attitude and approach toward music should naturally make these evaluations. I want to encourage the musicians in our audience. The music you play and the music you write are avenues through which you connect with your Creator, the one who gave us music to enjoy. So let's use our music for the glory of God. Let's play and sing with joy and gratitude, whether our music is quote-unquote Christian or not. But also, pursue opportunities to use your music to point explicitly and directly to the God overall, the Creator who made this sacred world and the music within it. Genesis 1.31 God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Thanks to Steve Nye for sharing with us his perspective and thoughts on music. I'm Jason Lowe, and I hope you will join us next month for our next episode of Breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs.